If you have a Bible with you or would like to use your phone or a pew Bible in the chair in front of you, we are be, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, it's the first gospel of the New Testament, first book of the New Testament. Um, we've been looking at the gospel of Matthew for a while now, and for the last couple weeks we've been um, sitting around chapter 10. And uh, chapter 10 is Jesus' instructions to his disciples about how we are to go about doing what he's called us to do on mission to proclaim the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 33. Um, I'm going to warn you, there's a lot in this passage, and there's a lot I'm not going to be able to address. Um, there's lots of questions that, that commentators are um, not in agreement over. So uh, if you have other questions, ask me later. We can dig into it, but I'm just going to warn you, I'm not going to touch everything that's in the passage. All right, would you follow along? Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 33. This is Jesus teaching his disciples. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known." What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, 
I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us. We thank you for Jesus, the very word of God, who is with us. Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us today. Open our eyes of understanding so we might behold your grace. Convict us so that we would be shaped into more Christ-likeness. And encourage us and empower us as we leave this place bearing witness to the truth of your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We like to say at Story Church that we exist to invite neighbors into a new story shaped by Jesus. That's our mission statement. That's why we exist as a church. To worship God, yes. To be in fellowship with one another, absolutely. But Christ has called his church into the world. And so we exist for our neighbors. We exist in part to invite our neighbors to experience the story of Jesus that you and I have experienced too. Chapter 10, Jesus is sending his church out to proclaim the story of Jesus. And he's instructing them about what it is going to be like for them. We've looked at this now. This is our third time. And in this particular passage, this section of chapter 10, Jesus warns us that it's not going to be easy. Maybe it hasn't been easy for you so far, but I promise you, Jesus is saying it's not going to be easy. So what do we see here in this passage? As we obey his command to go and invite our neighbors into a new story shaped by Jesus, what does Jesus have to say about it? Well, the first thing he says is that we should expect opposition. We should expect opposition. Jesus is warning his disciples that we will face opposition from the world as we proclaim the kingdom of God. At least four times in this passage, he makes that clear. First, in verse 16, right at the beginning, he says, I am sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. And the idea is clear, that there is real legitimate threat of danger for those who go out on mission. But he continues in verse 17 about what those threats are. He says, beware of men, that's beware of people, who will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Jesus is saying to his disciples, there will be times when you are brought up on trial, maybe before a judge, maybe before a council, maybe just in front of your friends. Well, you will have to give a testimony for your faith in Jesus, and Jesus says sometimes you will be punished because of that. And yet he continues, verse 21, even your brother will deliver you over to death. A father against his child. Children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. 
And then he says in verse 22, this summary statement, you will be hated by the world for my namesake. Jesus is warning us, we will face opposition from the world as we go and invite them into this story. Opposition should be an expected experience for disciples of Jesus. Now, for some of us, that experience might mean loss of friendships or relationships. People will grow to want to have nothing to do with you. For others, this might mean tension within your household. Brother against brother, parent against children, children against parents. The gospel will divide families. Still others of us will be given the chance to bear witness to the truth and we will face public humiliation. Maybe the loss of a job because of what you stand for. Maybe social ostracism because of what you stand for. Maybe rejection by the masses. According to Jesus, some of us, maybe, will even experience death for the sake of the gospel. I'm not trying to glorify suffering or, or to put persecution on a pedestal and say, look how wonderful this is. We should run after it. I am saying only what I see Jesus tell us here in this text. He is warning you and me that as he sends us out to bear witness to the kingdom of God, we should expect opposition. This shouldn't surprise us. He has already taught this message before. If, if you were with us last year, when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus says the same thing. Blessed are the persecuted. But it's not just Jesus that tells us this. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy says, Indeed, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the Apostle Peter, likewise, in 1 Peter 4, says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. I am sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. You will be hated by all. We should expect opposition. Do you feel it? 
Maybe you don't feel direct persecution, but maybe you have felt more pressure. I don't think that it's wrong for us to think that things are different now today for Christians than they were for Christians 10, 20, 40 years ago. Writer and social commentator Aaron Wren has recently written a number of articles and books describing this current Western world that we're living in. He describes it as a negative world. And to put that simply, he means this. The dominant culture today, so those who hold positions of power and influence in the various spheres of life, from politics to economics to art and media, education, that there is no longer an embrace or even a tolerance of basic Christian worldviews. But they have shifted into an increasingly hostile posture towards those who do hold to those basic Christian teachings. He says that this was not always the case in the West. Just 60 years ago, Aaron Wren calls that the, the time of positive world. In the positive world, Christianity it might not have been embraced by everyone, but it was accepted. There was this social benefit for being associated with Christ and the church. It was expected by those in places of power and influence and importance to be associated with the church. And then in the 80s and 90s, we shifted as a culture from positive world into what he calls a neutral world where those, those social benefits began decreasing in public, but there was still a general sense of mutual tolerance between those who disagreed. Hey, you can believe what you believe. I'm going to start believing what I believe. We can get along together. And we had that for about 20 or so years. But then beginning in the mid-2010s, this neutral world has begun giving way to this negative world. And for the first time in a while, holding to Christian worldviews has been looked upon with hostility. Not always, not in every interaction, but the dominant social trend is like this. Maybe you have sensed a similar change in your experience. That 10 years ago, you could believe something and talk about something and stand for something and hold to a conviction that you fear saying out loud today. Our places of work, public schools, throughout the marketplace, local governments, in many instances, there are no longer welcoming places or even tolerable places towards those who hold to the historic belief and ethic of the Christian worldview. Times are changing. In 2008, um, Pastor Dave Cover of a church called The Crossing out in Columbia, Missouri, um, they forged a relationship with this local film festival, an explicitly progressive documentary film festival called True False. And this relationship ran deep between the church and its members and this film festival. Like the church sponsored all of their charitable events throughout the year. 
you know, hosting them in their building. Uh, church members actually volunteered to help run the festival for free. The, the members would buy up tickets and passes and then go and bring their neighbors to the festival. Pastor Dave was hoping that these actions were building bridges between those who were Christians and those who weren't. He, he believed that the films were asking good questions about the human condition and, and what might be wrong with the world. It, it was this wonderful opportunity for the church to get their feet in the door and to build relationships with folks outside of the church. And that's what it did for a while. In fact, it was such a beautiful relationship that it drew national attention. And in 2014 and 2016, the New York Times and Christianity Today both wrote articles, positive pieces about this relationship. They were startled. And it was highlighting how both of these groups were able to work together, disagreeing on major issues. Maybe this was just how it used to be in a neutral world, Pastor Dave reflected. We could act as faithful, non-threatening presences without fear of retribution for what they thought as our regressive views. But all of that changed in 2019 when another one of their pastors at the church preached a sermon. They were going through Genesis, and they affirmed the church's position, the historic church's position, that there is only two genders. Well, this sermon, it caused a huge controversy in, in the community. I mean, at the crossing, as they stood their ground, their position, institutions around town started severing their ties with the church. I mean, the coffee shops stopped having business with them on Sunday mornings. Art galleries ended partnerships with them. And then the film festival cut off all ties with the church. Many of the relationships that the members of this church worked hard to establish, never offering gratuitous offense suddenly found themselves as the pariah in the parts of the community that they had been trying to reach. Another one of their pastors, Patrick Miller, said that by the end of 2019, we had unwittingly stepped on a landmine that made us untouchable in the circles that once welcomed us. Aaron Wren, the um, the, the commentator, says about this story, regardless of their approach, the world wasn't willing to accept their beliefs. The fact that Christians like these are at risk of being ostracized for their beliefs reveals that we've now entered a new and unprecedented era in American history. For the first time in the history of our country, Orthodox Christianity is viewed negatively by secular society, especially by its elite domains. Friends, this might be a new experience for us in the West. This negative world framework, it, it, it is certainly helpful to make sense of what's going on, but we should not be surprised by it. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, said, I am sending you out into a negative world. This is not new. Let's not be surprised by it. Jesus said this is going to be the case. When we boldly and courageously open our mouths to proclaim the story of Jesus, we should expect opposition. All right, two applications with that. Although we should expect opposition, we should 
not unnecessarily pursue opposition. Famously, the church father in second century uh, Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What he meant by that was as opposition increases, the church explodes and expands. We see this in the Acts of the Apostles. And that is certainly what is true. But that does not give us warrant to actively seek out unnecessary opposition. Jesus himself, in verse 23 in our passage, says, when you begin facing opposition, when you face persecution, move on to the next town. Don't hang around unnecessarily, causing more attention. If they reject you, move on to the next city. Move on to the next person. Move away. He says in verse 16 that we need to be smart about our mission. He says, be like serpents, be wise, be clever, be cunning, be shrewd. We need wisdom to know how and when we are to open our mouths. We are not to unnecessarily attract persecution. Let's be wise as serpents with our mouths, with our fingers as we type online, with the comments that we make around the water cooler, with the remarks that we make around the dinner table, the responses that we have while we're listening to the news. Let's be wise. And then secondly, although we should expect opposition, we must never respond to evil with evil. Jesus says that not only are we to be wise as serpents, we are to be as innocent as doves. That means we're to be pure, innocent, without blame in our behavior, especially in the faces of opposition. When someone says something that riles you up, how do you respond? When someone says something that gets under your skin, how do you react? To be innocent like a dove is to be respectful toward even those who disrespect you. To be gentle towards those who reject our message. We must not mock them. We must not rage against them. We must not talk down to them. Gentleness doesn't mean weak. The same Jesus who turns over the tables in the temple filled with righteous anger is also the compassionate Savior who will not crush a bruised reed. The Apostle Peter says that we are to show gentleness towards those who oppose us, to be respectful towards those who reject us. We are above all else to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, and it's really easy in our communities, in our families, in our own homes, in the echo chambers of our faith to find comfort in putting down and talking natively about the world. But those words, those thoughts should never be found upon our lips or in our heart. Remember Jesus hanging from the cross as the people mocked him? His prayer was, Father, forgive them. We need to have the same compassion against those who are our enemies. All right, Jesus says we should expect opposition. 
Secondly, he wants us to see where the root of that opposition comes from. So what is the root behind this? Jesus is warning us that being sent into a negative world, we will face opposition. That should be the new experience of all Christians in every part of the world. But he also wants to show us the root. This isn't just something that happens in America or the Western world. In every age of the church, as the gospel has gone forth, it always and will forever encounter opposition and persecution and even death. You you probably have heard stories of men and women in the Middle East in particular who have faced that kind of opposition to the gospel. I was reminded this week, back in the 16th and 17th century, so, so as Christianity was rising in the new world, on the other side of the world in Japan, Francis Xavier, the first missionary to Japan, went in with the gospel, and he led thousands of men, women, and children to Christ. But 50 years after he rose up the church in Japan, the rulers of that region began a campaign of persecution. For 35 years, they rounded up Christians, men, women, and children. A whole generation of Christians rounded them up, beat them, and killed them. What's the root of this? It can't just be changing tides of contemporary Western culture. We can't place it solely on our own experience. This has been going on for years, every year, for the last two millennia. What is the root of this opposition? We'll look again at what Jesus says in his warnings. Verse 18, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And 24 through 26, This is what he's saying. If they persecute the master of the house, how much more will they persecute its members? Jesus is saying that we should not only expect opposition, but that that opposition we face will ultimately be because of Jesus himself. Do you see that? We will be persecuted not because of how we talk about it, but because of who we talk about, because of Jesus. This is so important. Like, we must do our best. We must be wise as serpents here. We need to make sure that the opposition that the world has against us is because it is against Christ, not because it's against us. Not because of our behavior, not because of our tone of voice, not because of our rude comments. There is a big difference between being offensive with how we share the gospel and sharing the gospel, which is itself offensive. That's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 1, that the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who hear it and reject it. It is offensive to them already. So we need to get out of the way and not make it more offensive than it already is. The story of Jesus is offensive. But that is the story we go out to proclaim. Why? Why is it offensive? Why is the story of Jesus offensive? The story of Jesus is offensive because it demands everything from us. Jesus sent his disciples out to proclaim the message of a kingdom that is here at last. And I I said a couple weeks ago that 
that that message of the kingdom presupposes that there is a king and that every man, woman, and child must bow to that king. That's the story of Jesus, that he is God. He is the true king. That means you're not king. You're not in charge. To put it another way, Jesus is the main character of the story. He's the hero. He's the one about whom the whole story is written. He's who the whole story is moving towards. He is the author of the story itself. It's all about him. That means your life, every day of your life, every ambition of your life, every narrative that you tell yourself about who you are, what you're supposed to do, what your identity is, all of that necessarily falls underneath the umbrella of that story of Jesus. Or as our catechism question says, you are not your own. And this story flies in the face of the dominant narrative of our society that says, I am my own. I don't want to bow down to a king. I am the king. I'm independent. I'm free. I'm autonomous. I decide what is right and what is wrong. Even that word, autonomous, it literally means a law unto oneself. I decide who I am. I decide what relationships I have. I decide how I spend my money. I decide what I do with my time. I decide what my identity is. And no one and nothing can stand in my way. I was recently at a wedding of a friend. And interestingly, in the vows, one of them promised to the other, Never to get in the way of you pursuing what you want to pursue. In a moment, it sounded like a sweet gesture. But upon reflection, that is exactly the opposite of the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus says you are not free to pursue whatever it is you want to pursue. You must come under the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus demands everything from you. That is why the story of Jesus is offensive. It demands everything. The story of Jesus is also offensive because it freely is offered to everyone in need, which sounds countercultural. It's not just that the story of Jesus demands everything from us, It's that even the free gift of the gospel is offensive. Listen, to receive the story of Jesus, to believe in the gospel, that is only possible for those who admit that they have messed up their lives. It's only available to those who say to themselves, the life I've been living, the story I've been participating in is disastrous. I've messed it up. I'm messed up. This is why Jesus says that when he goes out to proclaim the kingdom, he says, repent and believe the gospel. To repent is to acknowledge the mess that you have made of your life. To acknowledge the rebellion in your heart. To confess the self-centered life that you've been living. And that's offensive to people because it forces people to come to grips with their own failure. It forces people to admit that they're not as good as they once thought they were. 
for many, they simply cannot accept that truth. We have, we have spent so much energy and time putting on a mask, presenting ourselves as spotless, editing our lives so that what people see on the outside is a photoshopped, AI-edited version of who we are. And it is painful, if not impossible, for us to be real and honest about ourselves. But that is precisely how one enters the story of Jesus. Remember, Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinner to himself. I love our song. So come, ye sinner, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, love, and power. The story of Jesus is offensive because it's freely offered to anyone. All you have to do is admit just how terrible you are. And we can't do that. Finally, the story of Jesus is offensive because it is the one true story. And this is perhaps where we'll find the most opposition. Maybe you have felt this already. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. That's what Jesus says at the end of chapter 10. We didn't read it, but verse 40 says this. Whoever receives your message receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Or in other words, the message of the story of Jesus, should you accept it, is the only way to the Father. I think that is where we will face the most opposition. Jesus can't be the only way. Who are you to say that? That's so arrogant of you. That's so closed-minded of you. That's so bigoted. I, I can't believe in someone who says that. That's oppressive. That's restrictive. Maybe you've encountered that. Maybe that's what you once thought. Maybe that's what you think today. Is it really bigoted? Like, is it bigoted to say, I believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved? Think about it. Let's say, and this is merely hypothetical, we can't even imagine something like this would happen, that there is a dangerous disease spreading violently around the world, affecting every nation, and that people are dying all the time, and that, up, that there's no cure for it. And so governments spend money and hours and energy and time searching for a cure. And then one person figures out the solution. And one person says, look, this is destroying everyone. Everyone is going to die, but I figured out the medicine. I figured out the cure. Is it bigoted for that person to say, I have the solution that you need. You don't have to keep looking. You don't have to keep searching any longer. Is that bigoted? No. Like, but that is what Jesus is saying. He is saying, go out and proclaim the message of the kingdom, that apart from me, you are in your sin. But should you come to me and receive me, you will live. That's not, that's not bigoted. But then you might say, that that's closed-minded. Like, you shouldn't force people to believe your way. Ever hear that? Ever think that? Well, let's think about that for a moment. So we say that to, to believe in Jesus is the only way to the Father. 
But maybe you say that's close-minded. Jesus isn't the only way to the Father. And so in other words, I'm saying you need to believe what I believe about salvation, and yet you're responding and saying, no, you need to believe what I believe about salvation. Do you see that? Like Both sides of that argument are actually saying, I believe this thing about the world, and I want you to believe what I believe about the world too. There's just no escaping that. It's not more closed-minded than the other. We're always, always, always saying, I believe a particular way about the world, and I want you to experience that too. It's not more closed-minded. Nevertheless, this is why the story of Jesus is offensive, because we believe it is the way, the truth, and the life. The story of Jesus is exclusive. It's all-encompassing. It demands everything from our lives. And that's why it's unacceptable in our world. It's been unacceptable for generations. Jesus is warning us that in this world, we will face opposition because the story of Jesus demands it. All right, I'm going to wrap it up. How do we respond? Jesus, throughout this whole passage, says, don't be afraid. He says it like four times. Don't be anxious about what you're going to say. Hey, don't be afraid of what they can do to you. Don't fear your father cares about you. Don't be afraid. I think that's how we should respond. Yes, we will face opposition. Yes, it's because the story of Jesus demands it. But do not be afraid. Jesus himself says, uh, take heart. In this world, you will face tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He's saying, do not be afraid. I, I love that. Fear not. You are precious to your heavenly Father who will take care of you. It reminds me of Isaiah 41. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I think that's what he's reminding us in verse 19. When you're delivered over to your death, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be anxious about what you're going to say to them when, they, when you testify about me. It's not you who's speaking in that moment, but it's the spirit of your Father who is with you and speaking through you. Do you see that? We're never alone. You are never alone in this mission. Jesus says, I am with you. Your God is with you. Do not be afraid. You are mine. The world may reject you. The world will hate you. The world will turn their back against you. But I will never do that. Your God will never do that. Do you know that when Jesus hung from the cross, as he was suffering for our sins, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In that moment, he was absorbing all of the wrath, all of the hatred, all of the opposition that we rightly deserve from God because of our sin. But Jesus was being forsaken. He was being turned away. He was being rejected on the cross, even killed for you. So that you would have the assurance that you will never be turned away from 
the assurance that his love will remain on you forever. And when we rest in that assurance, when we rest in that steadfast love, we will find strength to love even our enemies. That we will find strength to endure the opposition even to the end. Friends, sometimes the negative world will be attractive to the story of Jesus. Other times, it'll cry out, crucify them. It's not our part to guess the response and act accordingly. It is simply ours to trust and obey that a life shaped by the story of Jesus in the negative world is indeed the path not only to the cross, not only to death, but through death to resurrection and life forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is indeed a comfort for our soul, that it reminds us of your steadfast love, that you will never depart from us because of Christ. We praise you for the gospel, the message of our own salvation, and we pray, Spirit of God, would you encourage us and strengthen us to be bold and courageous with our declaration and proclamation of that life in Christ to our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, this is the gospel that we have been justified and are being sanctified in Christ. In February, we're using the Westminster Shorter Catechism questions 33 through 35.